Good morning. How is everybody doing out there? Good, good. Hey, happy uh, mid-July. Good news. We're halfway through summer, everybody. We're doing it. We're going to make it. I don't know. I'm just trying to pump you up. I have no idea if we're going to make it. It's going to get real hot this week. I'm just trying to get some good vibes going. Hey, my name is Jeremy. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Redemption Gilbert. So excited to be with you. I just had the privilege of the last couple of weeks being able to be away with my family on summer vacation. Summers uh, in Arizona are interesting because A, they're really hot and B, they're really short because kids start going back to school in like a week or two and all that. So everybody's cramming everything. And I know your summer is busy and it's hot, but I'm really excited to be adventuring into this series here through the lives of these kings. And I'm really excited to be able to talk to you uh, about the first king of Israel, Saul, today. Uh, I think it's really going to be a good opportunity for us to understand what God was doing with his people and maybe take some application from that about what we can be doing as we engage in that. If you would join me as we pray to kick off our time, here together, that'd be really great. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the gift of being able to gather together, even in the midst of a busy summer season. God, we are, I'm, I'm reminded personally of how meaningful this community is to me in my life. Coming back to see people that I love gathered around the one that I live for, Jesus. God, I pray that the people that are here with us this morning would feel encouraged, that they would learn something, and that they would be moved to follow you more closely. God, this community is a place where we can be transformed into the likeness of Jesus for the blessing of our neighbor and the good of our world and to bring glory to your name. Please help us to do it. We confess our inability on our own. We need you. So meet us here this morning as we venture through Saul's life. God, we thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're kicking off this series here uh, that's primarily in the book of 1 Samuel. That's at least where we are right now as we talk about what it looks like for Israel to move from what is largely uh, an independent kind of tribal community to a nation that has a king. And today is a significant moment in that story because we hear the story of how Saul is chosen and anointed as the first king of Israel. Now, there is a real downshift here or a changing of the page uh, as we're coming out of a book in Colossians, which is clearly instructive to us as the church. The book of Colossians that we just finished is really focused on how we as the people of God are to behave and to live and to think. And so it's easily applicable to you in your life because you are the people of God. So although we're uh, removed from that time by a large amount of time, uh, we can still apply those things to us. It's a little trickier when we now rewind another 1,500 years or so back to this moment, and we have two chapters of this story of how God chose this man's named Saul. I want to give you a little, for some of you, you might go, yes, I know this story. I'm very familiar with it. I grew up around the church. For others of you, this might be the very first time you've ever heard any of this, and maybe you're a little confused about where it fits into the timeline. So I just want to give you a little run-up that maybe will hopefully give you a little bit of a bracket around what we're talking about here this morning. So just running back just a little bit of time, a few hundred years. Here's what we have. Uh, Israel is in slavery in Egypt under the Pharaoh and Moses comes and brings the Exodus and takes them out of slavery. For 40 years then they wander in the desert where God creates them as a people. He gives them the law and he teaches them what it looks like to live under his rule and to be his people. And then Moses dies and Joshua takes over as leader and Joshua's role is to take them into the land that God has promised them. This is the place they will become a nation. 
And Joshua leads them in there and uh, takes the battle to the people that already live there and they settle into the land. And then the tribes of Israel, so the 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob, they all divide up the land that they've conquered and they settle in those places. And they live fairly independently with God as their king. But every so often when it's necessary, there will be a hero that rises up amongst the people to gather the tribes together, mostly for war or defense. Those are called the judges. They unite the people, they defend the people, and then they set down their leadership mantle and everybody goes back to living their agrarian tribal lifestyle. That's kind of where we are in this moment, uh, which is really important. But there's, some, there's a, a group of people that are really important in the story that we need to address. These are the Philistines. Uh, th- this... This word has even become a little bit of an insult for people who are kind of violent and uncouth in their way of living. They're Philistines. Uh, The Philistines were an actual people. These are people that lived right next door to Israel, and they were not really keen on the fact that Israel had taken over this section of land, and they were constantly fighting with them. In fact, there's a few people that have had encounters with the Philistines that you may have heard of, even if you're not super familiar with the Bible. Samson, for instance, he was the guy with the luxurious locks who also was super strong. He was, his main enemy was the Philistines. In fact, after Saul's story, we're going to hear about David, and David fights in one of the most famous battles in all of human history against Goliath, who was the hero of the Philistines. The Philistines are a thorn in the side of Israel. The Philistines are constantly waging war, incurring into their land, causing them all kinds of problems. And what has happened at this point is the people of Israel have said, hey, this whole deal where God's our king, great. But what we really need is a king like everybody else has so we can wage war against our problem neighbors, the Philistines. I'm gonna show, I know that for some of you, you go, ooh, maps. And for other of you, you go, oh my gosh, you just put a giant map up there. But uh, it'll be quick, so... Uh, so just to give you an idea, this is, this is the region of Israel at the time. Each one of these little sections that has a big label on it, those are the tribal areas for each of them. All the families kind of settled in those areas. And what we're really talking about is this place that I've helpfully circled with a green arrow right, right in here. Look, I have a laser pointer. Isn't that fun? And specifically, what we're going to be talking about is this little strip here in the middle where the tribe of Benjamin has settled. And you can see just down here to the southwest is Philistia, where the Philistines come from, okay? Just to give you a little context, this is the neighbors right next door that are causing all kinds of problems for the Israelites, And in the midst of this, we have the leader of the people, Samuel, prophet of the people. Samuel has been raised since he was a newborn baby to be a prophet for the people of Israel. He's well-liked, he's well-respected, he's well-loved. He's a traveling prophet that he moves around all of those regions that I showed you on the map, helping the people, judging. And when I say judging, literally like he is a law clerk, a judge that comes and decides things. He helps them with religious festivals. He brings them wisdom. He helps them in their worship of God. He's a well-liked person. The problem is Samuel's not a warlord. Samuel's not a warrior. Samuel doesn't offer them what the people feel like they really need, which is someone to wage a war against their enemies. That's the major problem that we have right now. And the people, as Paul talked about last week, have come to Samuel and they say, this is the deal. We need to change the way we do this. This loosely affiliated tribal network we have is great. What we need is a king. Because what a king is going to do is unite us permanently and have an army that can help defend us. And the story here, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 9, 
tells how this comes about. So let's start working through it. Here we go. You can follow along if you'd like. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 10. We're covering both chapters today. And I'm gonna, but I'm gonna have key verses all the way through that that you can just follow along if that's easier for you. Here we go. There was a Benjamite, so this is one of those tribes, one that I pointed out in the green circle. There's a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. Great name, Kish. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now, when you hear that, if you heard that in our day and age, you'd go, man, that guy must be what, six, seven, six, eight. He must be huge. Uh, in ancient Near Eastern Israelite culture, actually the average man was shorter than they would be today in American culture. The probably five, five is like the average Israelite. So just to get your head around it, uh, Saul's massive, but he's probably six foot, six one. He's handsome, he's tall. Yeah, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. He's an impressive young man. He has no equal. And part of it is when he walks around, he sta- his head is above the entire crowd. Now donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. Donkeys wandered off the farm. And Kish goes to his son, Saul, and he says, take one of the servants with you and go find the donkeys. Now this immediately tells us a few things. A, Kish is well-known and well-respected in his tribe. He has enough money to have donkeys and servants. Therefore, he's probably fairly wealthy. And he entrusts Saul and one of his servants to go on this adventure looking for the donkeys. And they take off. Now, it mentions a few regions that they search through in the text. Uh, A couple of those regions are actually kind of lost to history. We don't know exactly where they're referencing. But most scholars believe that they spend probably three or four days covering 60 miles of territory looking for these donkeys. Talk about annoying, right? Uh, they're wandering everywhere. They're gone long enough and they've went far enough that eventually Saul turns to the servant and he says, okay, we should really go back or my father's gonna stop talking about the donkeys and he's gonna start worrying about where we are because we've been gone so long and we've disappeared so far. But the servant has a better idea. This is what he says to him. The servant replied, look, in this town, there's a man of God. He's highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now and perhaps he will tell us the way that we should take. I think this is interesting for a few reasons. Number one, we've talked about Samuel being the functional leader of the entire nation. And yet in at least Kish's neighborhood, he's not a well-known character. In fact, he's kind of a legendary character that they've heard a little bit about. There's a seer who can kind of tell the future and he's nearby. Maybe we should go visit him. And Saul hears this advice and he says, that's really a great idea. We should go do that. We don't really have anything to offer the guy because we should bring him a gift if we're going to ask him for help. Uh, And the servant conveniently says, well, I got a little bit of silver in my pocket. We'll give him some coin. Hopefully he'll help us out. And so they agree. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the nearby city. We're going to see if we can find this guy, the seer. And they head off in that direction. And it works out great because they run into some girls who are gathering water at a well outside of the city gates. And they ask, hey, do you know anything about this seer? And they say, good news. He's right ahead of you. Hurry, he's just come to our town today for the people have a sacrifice at a high place. Like I said, Samuel is a roving leader among the people. He moves from place to place to place. I grew up in the very rural uh, northern plains of America. And in many small towns, there's still a small, most likely Lutheran church sitting there in the countryside. And those churches are still holding service for 15, 20 people. 
But the way it works now is that one pastor cares for eight churches and he does kind of a circuit around to all the churches. Samuel did something like that. And the girls say, well, good news. The guy you're looking for, he's here today because our people are having a religious sacrifice today and he's gonna help them with it. In fact, he's gonna be coming out of the gate today. If you wanna head up there, you might bump into him. So off they go. And Saul approaches, I, I, I was telling Rachel this morning, my wife, uh, early this morning, I said, there's sometimes when you're going through a narrative like this that you wish you could rewrite it a little bit to introduce some tension. They, they spoil right away that Saul's running into Samuel. I would have liked it better if it said, Saul ran into a man. But it tells us he runs into Samuel. He says, will you please tell me where the seer's house? And immediately when I hear that, I think of a story that I know from my childhood about a young future leader who was seeking wisdom from a sage and he bumps into him not knowing that it is who he's looking for and he asks him where he can find this wise leader. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's um, Luke and Yoda. It's a little dark up there, but... Immediately, I think of Luke lands on Dagobah and he runs into Yoda and he says, hey, I'm looking for this Jedi. Do you know where he is? He doesn't know it's him. Samuel, of course, says, the seer I am, Samuel replied. <laughs> he, he bumps into him right there at the city gate. Samuel's coming out, or Samuel's coming out, Saul's going in. They bump into each other. They have this moment where Saul says, I'm looking for the seer, and Samuel says, you found him. Now, you might think that Samuel would be confused about this. This guy's looking for him, I wonder what he wants. But the text actually tells us, uh, this is the part that Darcy read for us this morning. The day before Saul had arrived, the Lord had revealed to Samuel about this time tomorrow, I'm gonna send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You're gonna anoint him as the leader over my people, and he'll deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people and their cry has reached me. I think this is a really important place to stop because the story of Israel desiring and selecting a king is fraught with complication. It's fraught with complication because on one hand, the story tells us that this is the act of Israel rejecting God as their king. And yet another part of the story is that God honors their request and sees this as an opportunity to rescue his people. The reality that we just have to wrestle with is that when we are dealing with a God who is transcendent and other, sometimes it's hard to understand exactly how all this stuff works together. Because it is true that Israel is rejecting Samuel as their leader and therefore God as their king. And yet God is hearing their cry and he's having sympathy upon them. He understands why they would do this thing. It reminds me a little bit of when my kids were little and they would throw a fit about something. On one hand, I would be frustrated because they would be throwing a fit. And another part of my father's heart understood why they were behaving this way because they didn't understand and they felt like they had a need that needed to be met and they were going about it in a way that was inappropriate, but I understood. It feels like that is what God is doing here. Yes, they've rejected me. In fact, he tells uh, Samuel in the previous chapter, Samuel, I know you feel like they're rejecting you, but they're not. They're rejecting me, not you. But here he says, I'm gonna give them this man because he is going to help them defeat their enemies, the Philistines, because I've heard their cry. I understand their concerns. And this is what, I, one of the challenges as we're talking about this story and this specific place and these specific people is how do I apply that to you and to me today? Here's one of the places where I think it's, there's a natural application. He hears our cry. 
This is the reality of what it says to us. Even if we are grasping about for ways to solve our problems, even if we're going about it in a way that does not always honor God, he hears our concerns as a people. He hears the things that afflict us. He hears the things that crush us. And he is attentive to our voice. And maybe if we want to make this, it was really important to me when I wrote this to say he hears our cry. Because what he says about Israel is that collectively he hears their cry. But I think if we want to make this personal, it's easy to say he hears your cry. Psalms written by David, who is the king to come after Saul. He writes and he says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. We serve a God that even though we reject him and reject his rule over our lives, still loves us enough to come close and to hear the deepest cry of our hearts. Your hurts, your brokenheartedness, your sinful responses to those things and the way that you've dealt with those hurts and those concerns in ways that are not godly does not drive God away. In fact, the text of the scripture says that it draws him near to us because he loves us and he cares for us. And he cared for Israel too. And Saul begins to lay, or Samuel begins to lay out for Saul what he's heard from God. And here's what he says. As for those donkeys that you lost three days ago, now keep in mind in the story, Samuel, or Saul never tells Samuel why he's in the countryside or why he's bumped into him. He never mentions the donkeys once. But Samuel, in his kindness, tells him, hey, you know that seemingly insignificant thing that you've been concerning yourself with, your lost donkeys? God sees and he's gonna take care of it. Don't worry about it. They're gonna be back home. They've been found. And then he gives him this line. And to who all the desire of Israel has turned. Now that's a weird way to say it, but he's essentially saying Israel is demanding a king and their attention is turned to you. If not to you and to your father's family. You're worried about donkeys. All of Israel is hoping on you and your family. And this catches Saul completely off guard. This is what he says. Am I not a Benjamite? We're the smallest tribe in all of Israel. Isn't my clan the least of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin? Why would you say such a thing to me? Now, it's interesting. What he says is, of the 12 tribes, aren't we the smallest and least significant? I believe that because when they hear about the prophet, the guy who leads the whole nation, they don't even know his name. They just know that he's a guy that's out there, which tells me they're not very politically connected. They don't have very much influence in those that are making decisions at the highest level of Israel. They're a backwater clan. They have this small little region. And he says, and in our small little backwater region, isn't my clan the smallest of all the clans? Even in our insignificant little place, aren't we the smallest of the ones? Notice he doesn't say, and isn't my family the smallest of the in my clan, because that's not true, because we know he's got standing and money. But Saul can't fathom that this search for a king would land on him because he is from a place of insignificance. Just for some structure so you know, I, I kind of laid it out and I described it a little bit there. The, the, the nation is, is divided into these categories. Tribe, meaning you are part of the family of Benjamin or, or part of the family of Israel or uh, Judah, for instance, and then within that tribe, there are clans. These are large extended family groups. And then within that large extended family group, you have a family. This would be Kish and his son, Saul. 
This is the structure. Before I go ahead, what, what, uh, what Samuel says to Saul is this is what God has intended for you. And I'm here today to help these people make a sacrifice to God. They're gonna take animals to the high place. They're gonna sacrifice them to God. And then we're bringing those animals back here to have a feast. And the reason that we're having a feast today is because the future king of Israel is in our midst. And they conduct this ceremony and they bring the food back and they create this giant feast with the animals that have been sacrificed. And he tells the host of the party, make sure that the choicest part of the animal is given to this man. He doesn't explain why, he just says that this guy gets the best piece of the meat. And they bring him the uh, New York strip and they put it down right in front of him and they enjoy this meal together. And then it says that Samuel does something even more surprising. He, he makes a bed for Saul on the roof of the house and he lets him stay the night which might seem strange, but they lived in the Middle East in uh, era pre-air conditioning. And so it was very common in the warm parts of the uh, year to sleep on the rooftop. And Saul ends up spending the night at Samuel's house. They have a good old-fashioned sleepover after their pizza party. It was really great. And in the morning early, Samuel calls to Saul and he says, hey, you and your servant gather up. I'm gonna send you back home now. And they begin to wander back towards the city gate. And then they get to the edge of the city gate and Samuel says to Saul, tell the servant to go ahead of us. And the servant does, he goes on ahead. You stay here a while so that I can give you the message from God. And then Samuel takes a flask of oil and he pours it on Saul's head and he kisses him and he says, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? His inheritance is the way that God talked about Israel. Israel was his inheritance. These are his children. This is his family. And he says to Saul in this moment where he anoints him, he pours oil over his head. He gives him a kiss, which is the way that you would have brought in a new king. And he says, has not the Lord anointed you the leader? What's interesting to me is that he does all of this in secret. He doesn't have a big grand ceremony. In fact, he doesn't even allow the servant who's close to Saul be there to witness it. It's the two of them in secret right outside the city walls where he does this thing. And you might say, well, why in the world would he keep this a secret? They found the king. Wouldn't this be a big deal? Well, part of the reason is because just down the road, there's a Philistine outpost. The Philistines have incurred into Israelite territory. They've set up a camp and a base there in that place. And my assumption is that Samuel knows if word gets out that we've anointed our king and he's right down the road and he has no army and no defense, they're gonna come and try to kill him immediately. So what Saul does is obey God by anointing him, but he does it very quietly, very secretly where only him and Samuel know about it. And then he sends Samuel on his way to return home. He tells, before he sends him on his way, he says, there's gonna be a series of things that are gonna happen between now and when you get back to your house. And he lays them out. And it's kind of, the, you can read it uh, in there if you'd, if you'd like. It'd probably bring some color to the story, but it's a series of strange events. One, he says, you're gonna run into a small group of people who have food and meat and wine, and they're gonna offer some to you. Then you're gonna run into another group that are gonna be filled with these like spiritual mystics and they're gonna be caught up in the spirit and they're gonna be singing and prophesying and you're gonna get caught up in this and you're gonna do that with them. Uh, and then you're gonna have a couple inter interactions and then you're gonna go home. And what it says is that 
Samuel says to Saul, after that, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for, the God, for God is with you. He essentially says, I know you're having a hard time believing this is what God is intending to do with you today. You've told me that you were just out looking for donkeys and you're from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan within your tribe. You can't even understand how this works, but let me tell you, you're gonna have these encounters and they're very specific and they're very strange. And when they happen, that's gonna be a validating picture to you, Saul, that you're the man that God has chosen. And after that happens, the spirit of God is gonna come upon you. He's gonna change you. And at that point, anything you decide to put your hand to, you're gonna have success at because God is with you. This is another place where I think there's a natural opportunity for us to pause and apply this to ourselves. Because in the Old Testament, it was actually an unusual thing for the spirit of God to descend upon someone. It happens occasionally in the texts of the Old Testament. And when it happens, it's a very specific and unusual moment. And it signals God's hand upon that person for a purpose. And I love what he says here. It's like, once you've been validated that this is what God wants to do with your life, the spirit of God's gonna come upon you and it's gonna change you radically. And once that happens, anything you put your hand to, do it because God's gonna be with you. This is what the New Testament teaches us, that when Jesus comes and Jesus lives and dies, and in the moment of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the earth, all of those who put their faith in Jesus will have a moment just like this, where the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will be changed into a completely different person. If you are here in the room today and you have put your faith in Jesus for your salvation, then this moment, which was reserved for kings in 1 Samuel, has happened to you. It happened to you in the moment that you put your faith in Jesus and the Spirit came upon you and you have been transformed into a different person. And therefore, if that is true, then we should be able to say that we can do whatever our hands find to do because God is with us. Now that introduces some tension right there because you say, well, whatever I decide to do, I could get myself into some trouble there. Yes, you're right. I have a quote here from a pastor. Uh, he's a pastor up in Michigan. His name is Kevin DeYoung. You may have heard of him. He wrote a book called Do Something. It's about pursuing the will of God as a Christian. And here's what he says. So the end of the matter is this. Live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourself. Be holy. Love Jesus. And as you do these things, do whatever else you like, with whomever you like, wherever you like, because you will be walking in the will of God. Now notice this is conditional. What he's saying to, to Saul and what he's saying to us is that when we live for God, when we obey the scriptures, when we think of others as ourselves, when we live holy lives, when we love Jesus, then what comes out of us after that will fit into the will of God and you can do whatever, who should I marry? Are you obeying the scriptures, living for God, living, thinking of others over yourself, being holy and loving Jesus? then choose whoever also loves Jesus and does these things and it's gonna be fine. Should I move to Fargo? Should I, no, sorry. <laughs> just, I was just there, it just came out of me. Should I move to Fargo or move to Phoenix? 
Are you obeying the scriptures, living for God, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving Jesus? Then choose one and live that way. And the instruction that Samuel gives to Saul is that if you are committed to the will of God, then do whatever your hand finds itself to do and God will be with you and goodness will come out of it. This is both the freedom and the responsibility that Christians have. You have been given immense freedom to bring blessing to the world as God has made you and as you see fit. The conditional part of it is you should be seeking after the will of God first and submitting your decisions to a community of people doing the same thing. And if you're doing that, the outcomes will be good and God will be with you. This is both a massive responsibility and a huge freedom. Should I start this business? Seek counsel and then sure, go for it. Should I shut my business down? Have you sought counsel? Are you obeying the scriptures? Are you putting others before yourself? Then sure, there is immense freedom in that. And what he says to Saul is as king, you're gonna have to make immense decisions. You're gonna have to decide whether to wage war and whether to send other people's sons into war. These are huge issues of massive consequence. How do I know what is right and what is wrong? the first thing you should be doing is pursuing the kingdom of God. And if you are giving yourself wholly to that, then whatever comes out of it from there is gonna be good and God will use it as such. Therefore, we have to steward the responsibility and also be people of action. He doesn't say, wait, God's gonna bring everything to you. He says, whatever you put your hand to, there is an activity involved in this. And there's a, there's a freedom that comes with that that I'm really encouraged by, but I also understand that it comes with some weight. Am I pursuing God in the way he's asked me to pursue him? What's interesting is that Saul tells Samuel, when you leave and you have all these moments of validation where you run into that group and this group and these things happen, that's when the spirit of God will be on you and your life will be changed. The text says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all those signs were fulfilled that day. God changed him right there. And he made them into the person, the man that he needed him to be. And the same thing I think happens to us, that God transforms our heart in our moment of faith. What this indicates to me is that Saul believed him before he got the validation. He believed as soon as he turned around to walk away. And God used that faith to transform his heart. It's a little while later, uh, after it's about a week goes by, um, Sa- uh, Saul has returned home. The donkeys have been returned. Samuel comes to this place called, called Mitzpah, uh, and he summons all the people of the Lord together. And then he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And then he gives him a speech, which you can read. It's really Um, good. He talks about how God's been faithful to them, how he's delivered them from slavery, how they've chosen to reject God's leadership and ask for a king, but God is going to honor that in them. In fact, that's how he wraps it up. But you have now rejected your God. He did all this for you. He's loved you. And now you've rejected him who saves you out of all your calamities and your distress. And now you've said, no, set a king over us. And so he says, present yourselves to the Lord by your tribes and your clans. Everyone gathers together and they divide themselves up in tribes and clans and families. And they begin this process of winnowing them down. And most scholars talk about what the priests would do is they would have a a small sack that would have a white and a uh, black rock in it. And the priest would dig into the sack and he'd ruffle it around and he'd pull one out. 
And if you got the black stone, it was a no. And if you got the white stone, it was a yes. And so what they would do is they would divide the tribes in half and he would pull out and say, this group is a no and this group is a yes. And then they would divide that group and they would divide them down, divide them down, divide them down until they get all the way down to the Benjamites as the final tribe that has been selected. And then they start dividing the tribes up into clans and they get all the way down and then they get down to the final clan and they divide them to families and they get to the families and the one that they're waiting to choose, they get all the way to the bottom and this is what they say. Finally, Saul, son of Kish was chosen, but when they looked for him, he wasn't there, which is a little awkward when you've had this big, gigantic, elaborate process and then you get down to the end in which the stones are supposed to tell us who's been chosen and the guy's missing. So they inquire further of the Lord. Uh, did we miss him? Did he not show up? Is he still traveling? Has he been delayed? Did you get a text from him? Does anybody know where he is? <laughs> That's embarrassing enough. What is more embarrassing is what actually is going on. Saul's been there the whole time. He's hiding in the luggage. I'm not joking, guys. The king of Israel, <laughs> during this elaborate choosing process, is hiding in the luggage. And they drag him out of the luggage and say, here's the man. And then Samuel has the unenviable task of presenting. I love this. They drag him out. We can't find him. What are we going to do? I don't know. Here he is. Drag him out of the baggage in front of everyone. Stand him up. And then Samuel has to stand in front of the people and give this. Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. You don't say. I mean, it really reveals a few, I mean, it reveals some things about Saul, I think. I mean, it reveals his lack of confidence. It, it reveals his fear. It reveals the weight. I mean, you just heard the prophet of God tell the entire nation that they've rejected God's leadership and wanted a king and you're the guy they're putting in charge. That's heavy. He also knows that what this comes with is war. What is going to be expected of him as the king is that he's going to lead the people in a war against the Philistines and they're warlike people. They know how to fight. This is a scary moment for this guy. It's intense. But the people rally because they know this should be a big moment. So they say, Have, do, is there anyone like him among the people? And the people shout, long live the king. They get on board. They're excited. Yep, this is the one. Look at him. He's tall. He's handsome. He looks like he could lead a warrior battle. He's good at winning hide and seek. <laughs> this guy, we can get behind him. Long live the king. Now, that's not the last word. In fact, there's two other things that happen right at the end of the chapter. The, first one, the second one is the one I'm going to tell you first. But some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? And they despised him and they brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. God has said he has chosen a king. God's prophet Samuel said God has chosen a king, and it's this guy. And the first response from this crowd is, I doubt it. That doesn't seem right. I mean, the temptation is to say, well, haters going to hate, right? I mean, it happens all the time. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how right it is. It doesn't matter how much the authority in charge, including God himself, has chosen it. There is going to be a percentage of the crowd that is going to say, I doubt it. I could do it better. That seems wrong. I don't think they've got this figured out. I should have been the king after all. We backed the other candidate. 
can we get a recount? That's just the reality. We just have to deal with the fact that that's gonna happen. I mean, we have it very clearly laid out in scripture that God himself and his prophet have said, this is the dude. And there's an audience that's like, I don't think so. Okay, moving on. But we also have to be fair to these people. Because that was my first flinch. I can't believe there's haters at this moment. And he, they point them out. But here's what one of my commentaries said. Saul has done nothing to distinguish himself or gain public confidence. In fact, he's been dragged from behind the baggage where he was hiding. In this case, the haters might have a point. Like, I'm not so sure that this is the right guy. Did you see? You remember all that commotion? Yeah, what was that all about? He was hiding in the baggage. It's easy to focus on these folks. And these folks typically are a pain in your side. Uh, And it's easy to get distracted. There's two things I want to take away from it. The first one is Saul's response. I'm going to go back. What does Paul do with the haters? He keeps silent and he moves on. It's not worth it. After all, he knows that there's a big question mark hanging over his head. And what, how he performs is gonna be the validator of whether he can really save them or not. He keeps silent. I need more of that in my own life. Like, just don't worry about it. Keep silent. But I really wanna actually point us to the second group of people. Because I think the second group of people are the people that we want to be. This is what it said. Saul went to his home in Gibba, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. In this moment, in as inauspicious as it is, in which Saul is hiding in the baggage, in which Saul is nervous about what this means, in, in which we're unclear, after all, it seems like we've rejected God, what are we going to do about this? What happens here is that there is a group of people who witness this moment happening and God touches their hearts and they say, we will abandon our plans. We will leave our homes because we want to be on mission with God. We will no longer let our desires be the thing to drive us. Instead, we will unite behind what God is doing in the world and with his people. When I read this, I thought, it's so easy to get caught up in the naysayers. But what I want us to be as a church, what I want to be as a Christian follower of Jesus is I wanna be a valiant person. I wanna be a valiant man. I wanna be a man of bravery who sees what God is doing in the world, who understands that it's gonna be difficult, it might be costly, there will be haters on the sideline telling me I'm doing it wrong and to pursue it anyway. I want to follow King Jesus all the way to his kingdom, just like these men do. And I hope you want to be those kind of people too. God is doing something in the world. God is transforming his world through his people for his glory, for his benefit, and for the blessing of your neighbors. And he's inviting you to participate with him in that. We have a series of cultural convictions here at Redemption Church that are very interesting. Um, They're on our website. You can look at them sometime. Uh, But one of them in particular, as I thought about this, really stood out to me. And and here's what it is. Life is naturally supernatural. And I I wrote a little thing underneath it to kind of help me summarize what I mean. And and here's, here's the way I read that through this story. It is through pedestrian, everyday situations, lost donkeys. And with unimpressive average people from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan, that God is orchestrating his story of redemption in the world. The mundane takes on transcendence because every moment is alive with the purpose of God. 
there's, there's a temptation, and growing up in church, I saw it all the time. When you teach a lesson like this, the pastor at the end says, and so here's how you can be like Saul, or here's how you can be like David. We just have to be brutally honest with ourselves. We're not, there might be a Saul in the room. Most likely, we're all the folks that just got divided up by the prophet up there, and we're in our tribe, living our lives, doing our thing. We're unimpressive pedestrian, average, everyday folk. And the question that is being asked of us is not, are you going to be a good king? But instead, how are you going to serve the true king? And the reality of the way that God does this and stories like this illustrate it for us is he does it by using your everyday, mundane, average life and asking you to reimagine that life, your place in it and the way you engage in it as participating in the revealing of God's kingdom in the world. It's to see that every little mundane part of your life is actually an invitation to participate in the purpose of God. Nothing in the world is mundane. Everything is sacred. Everything can be transcendent because God is behind it all. Even when you lose your keys, under the couch. That, that's my, that's, I don't, I've never lost donkeys, but I have lost my keys before, and I know how annoying that is. Even in that moment, God is doing something. He's behind it. He's moving us. He's putting us into positions. He's bringing about these moments of amazing transcendence where we bump into the person that he's been preparing us for at the city gate. I want to invite you into a story, not that makes you the prophet or makes you the future king, but makes you a person who's going to participate in the way God is orchestrating everything. That's the invite of the Christian. You've already been given the spirit of God if you've trusted in Jesus. You've already been transformed into a different person, and now you're being asked to put your hands to the daily task, envisioning them as part of God's purpose for transforming the world. Let's pray that God would help us to be those kinds of people. God, we thank you so much for the story of Saul. We thank you for how you anointed him as king and gave him a gift that he was called the steward. God, we confess that we will probably never be kings. We will never have the kind of leadership that was entrusted to Saul. But we will be people that have been transformed by the spirit of God. And we will be people who every day have to make decisions about what we put our hand to. God, we pray that we would be people who would see our lives, even the most mundane parts of it, as participating in the revealing of your kingdom to our world. God, that through our living, we can bring about blessing and flourishing for our neighbor and bring glory to you and to your name. That's what we desire as your people. God, we pray that this week, as we go about summer vacations and prepping for back to school, that we would be able to live in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.